God, it's such a simple thing that we just sang that we need you every hour, uh, and that is completely true. Your word says that uh, you give us life, breath, everything, that you uphold the universe by the word of your power, so we need you this hour just to exist, um, let alone to grow in our knowledge of you and for you to help lead us out of sin into real life in Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, that this morning you are eternally alive as our one defense and our righteousness, standing before the Father, that we're clothed in your righteousness by faith and that we have access like we've been reading and singing about to talk to you and that you hear us when we call. So Lord, we need you this hour and I pray that in this hour you would speak to us through your living active word, the scripture, to encourage us as a church, to make us more and more the sort of people that you want us to be for the glory of your name. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You know, I just realized this morning, one of the things I love about preaching in the third service, 11:15 service, is that in the 8 a.m. service uh, every week, that's me trying to figure out, do I have time to say everything that I plan to say? Only to discover no. Uh, 9.30 is a service where I figure out what to cut out of the sermon so that there's time for everything, only to learn that something else obvious, always expands to fill that void. Third service is where I just rest and go, ah, we'll be done when we're done. We're great, so you guys don't have anything better to do. It's air-conditioned in here. It's like, like 100 degrees and humid out there. So uh, take a deep breath, and we're just going to get through it. All right. Um, hey, so we're taking a four-week uh, pause in Genesis. We've been working our way through the book of Genesis now for over a year. Uh, last Sunday, we did our reflection service for Isaac and Jacob, uh, parts of the story. Uh, and we're going to come back the first Sunday in September and start preaching through the story of Joseph and, and, and how God ends up redeeming his family and saving them ultimately from famine and planting them through Egypt through a crazy series of events that his brothers clearly meant for evil, but God meant for good. Um, but here's the thing. Normally we start with a reflect, uh, reading service. There's too much material to pack into one Sunday morning reading service, even if we talk fast. And so we're going to do something a little outside the box, if you didn't know this. August 26th, the last Sunday night of this month, um, we are going to have a special evening reading service in here um, to cover the last 13 chapters of Genesis and get all the jo uh, Joseph story all at one time. I'm excited about it. I think it's going to be great. We're pulling in some great people to be readers and actors for that. Uh, so put that on your calendars. If your grace group meets on Sundays, uh, if you'd be willing to take that Sunday off and get your whole grace group here for reading service, that would be great. And then we'll start with the Joseph preaching on uh, September, the first Sunday in September, but we want to take four uh, Sundays before the school year starts as a church to think about praying together. So not just a series on prayer um, or private prayer, um, private quiet time and, and personal prayer, individual prayer, but praying together as a church, the place for prayer in the life of the church you know, just about every Sunday in our announcements or at some point in the morning that we will reiterate our vision at Grace, the, the big aim that we have overarching all that we do comes right out of Colossians 1, and it is to present everyone mature in Christ. That's the end goal, and that assumes there are a lot of people outside these walls this morning that don't even know Christ, and we want to introduce them to Christ and invite them to Christ, and then we want them to grow in their knowledge of Christ in such a way that their lives are transformed by Christ. 
And this is not just a vision statement of our elders. And so it's, I don't want you when, you, when you hear that, to present everyone mature in Christ, think, yeah, that's the elder's job, to present all of us mature in Christ. That's all of our job. If you have your bulletin, look on the back. For a while, it had somehow disappeared from our bulletin, and it's back now. I just wanted to draw your attention to it. If you look on the back, there's that little box that says elders, and it lists the names of uh, uh, the elders. I'm first there. I guess that's just because my last name starts with C. doesn't mean anything other than that. Um, but then underneath that, I digress. You wonder why I ran out of time. Um, ministers of the gospel, the entire congregation, that's not just us being clever or saying, hey, you're all, we're all important. Hey, everybody's winners. We really believe this, that the ministers of the gospel here at Grace or at any local church that pre preaches the gospel is the entire congregation, each man and woman in Christ, young, old, brand new in the Lord, years and years walking with the Lord, that it is God's intention in saving you to make you part of a what uh, Peter in his... Uh, letter first Peter says is like a giant household, a living household, a temple to God's glory. And each individual is like a living stone in this, this temple, this household God is building to display his glory in the world. And we're all part of it. Each living stone, or, or Paul says, he, like each member of the body when it's working properly, the entire body works together to build itself up in love. So presenting everyone mature in Christ, that's all of our aim to be living with one another in such a way that we're moving. That means progression. Growing to maturity means that we are growing from one degree of glory to another, Paul says to the Corinthians. Sometimes from one fraction of a degree of glory to another. That's how it feels for me. But nevertheless, we're all helping each other with this. So for a minute, I wanted to think about marks of maturity. Uh, what, are, what are the things that are evidence among a, a body of believers that we are presenting each one mature in Christ, that, that we're growing. We might think first of fruit of the Spirit, just character being transformed. Um, the Bible talks about the old self dying when we turn from sin and turn to Christ, and now God is renewing his image in us, and so now things like uh, fruit of the Spirit are things like love increasing among us, the way we care for one another and love the stranger and love the outsider and love the lost, or, or joy increasing among us despite trials and suffering, nevertheless, uh, 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 inextinguishable joy being seen among us or patience with one another. I mean, so fruit of the Spirit, those are marks of maturity. There are also certain activities, the Bible says, that are marks of, uh, of maturity, of, of a church that is growing will be about certain things, certain good works. Paul says that there are good works God has prepared in advance that we would walk in them. So things like faithful gospel witness and bold, courageous gospel witness is a mark of maturity, isn't it? We've been reading through the book of Acts recently in our uh, Take Up Your Sword reading. Um, we've read about two-thirds of it so far. And we think of Peter and John. Peter, who at the end of the Gospels was denying Jesus every, you know, three times, even to a little servant girl that pointed him out. And all of a sudden we get to Acts 4, and he and John are threatened and beaten and said, don't keep talking about Jesus of Nazareth. And they say, well, you know, you do what you're going to do, but we cannot help but speak of what we've seen and heard. There's an evidence of maturity there, right? 
of growing understanding and faith and confidence in who the risen Christ is and seen in their, in their proclamation, their bold proclamation of, of, of their witness. I was thinking about joyful generosity as a mark of maturity. You know, in Acts 4, at the end of Acts 4, we're, we're told of people like Barnabas who are new believers and they come to, see, to realize that the things that belong to them don't really They belong to God and are entrusted to them. And so Barnabas goes joyfully and sells this piece of land he has and brings the full proceeds and lays it at the feet of the apostles so that among them there's no one who's in need and goes without. And you'd say that that act right there, that activity properly motivated, of course, we got Ananias and Sapphira in the next chapter, so that can go wrong. It can look real but be fake. But when it's genuine, joyful generosity is a mark of, of Christian maturity. Well, among all the things that are evidence of maturity, I think none are more foundational than prayer. Praying is a mark of people who know God. Listen to this. J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, says as much. He says, people who know their God are before anything else people who pray. On the other hand, he says, if however there is in us little energy for such prayer and little consequent practice of it, This is a sure sign that as yet we scarcely know our God. He says that because as as a man in his 90s who has walked with God for decades, I almost said centuries, but he's getting close, decades, uh, and, and he has come to know God and the knowledge of God would make him say, if you really know God, but don't talk to him, what's up with that? A God who created everything with a spoken word who stands ready to hear your every prayer, listens and responds and helps and gives mercy in time of need and we don't talk to him? It just doesn't make sense. People who know their God certainly pray. And I think the same could be said for a church. A people who know their God will be a people who pray who come before him together regularly and pray. And this is what we've been seeing in the book of Acts. So if you haven't been reading along with us, I'd love to encourage you. We still have uh, a few more months left of the year. You can find on our Grace website uh, our New Testament reading plan under the resources tab. It's great. Five days a week, one chapter each day, and we're working our way through the New Testament. But we've been in Acts, and I've been struck by how pervasive praying together is in the book of Acts. Not just prayer, but in particular, Christians, when they're together, they're constantly praying for everything. Look at in chapter one of Acts. The book of Acts begins with prayer. Jesus has the 12, he's risen now, he's about to ascend, and he gathers them together and he says, Acts 1-4, the promise of the Father is about to arrive. This is the thing for centuries been waiting for, not just Jesus to come, die, and rise, but now the promise of the Father is about to come. God is about to pour his spirit out on mankind and use us as sinners to bring the good news of what Jesus has accomplished to the world and demonstrate God's glory in the world through his church, and it's about to happen. Uh, What Abraham was promised one day all the families of the earth are going to get blessed through you, Abraham, through Jesus. Jesus is saying, it's time. Here it is. This is about to happen. Just pause. Last night, I was about to go to bed, and I read this little bit from Ray Ortland Jr. Got me fired up about this. Listen, 
This is a great perspective change for us about what are we doing here at church. He said, Jesus didn't die and rise again to get us all going to church and add some niceness to our already pretty good lives. That's not why we're here, to just add a little bit of niceness on. He says, no, he died and rose again to create a new kind of community that will astonish the world. And he writes, you can be part of it. That's not him just being melodramatic. Acts 3, or Ephesians 3.10, Paul says that God intends in the world to manifest his glory through the church. To, to un- unleash and spread his grace out to the world through the church. So here they are, Acts 1, they're waiting for the baton to get passed to them, to begin running the leg that God has set out before them, the first leg in bringing this good news to the ends of the earth. And what are they doing? Acts 1.14. All these with one accord, all of them together with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus is there and his brothers and all with one accord, they are devoting themselves. So this means ongoing. They didn't just get together, have one little prayer meeting. All right, waiting for the promise of the Father. Done with that. No, they're, they're praying together. They're devoting themselves to prayer. And in Acts 2, the Holy Spirit falls and, and the apostles stand up with power and preach and thousands receive Christ in that first day and this early church is raised and they don't stop praying together. Look at Acts 2.42. One of the regular activities of this new community God is creating to astonish the world through Jesus, they devote themselves, Acts 2.42, to the apostles' teaching because they need to grow in maturity and to the fellowship, the, the living out the body life, the one anotherness now of, of being this community. They devote themselves to the breaking of bread, probably the Lord's Supper, regularly remembering just as Jesus had commanded, and to the prayers. Probably not just they were dedicating themselves to private personal prayer. I'm sure they did. But I think here he means they devoted themselves to regularly being together to pray. And the last verse in Acts chapter 2 tells us what the cumulative effect of of this happening, a community that is devoting themselves to growing and learning, being together and praying. It says, and day by day, the Lord added to their number. They were growing. God was presenting more and more mature in Christ, in part as a result of praying together. But it goes on, Acts 4, this young church now begins to be faced with persecution and violent threats. And Peter and John are hauled into court and beaten and sent out with a big threat. Acts 4.24, what did the church do? When they'd heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God. They all gathered together with some fear and trembling, I'm sure, but in faith as well. And they prayed this beautiful prayer together. God, make us bold. Help us to not shrink back. Stretch out your hand and continue to perform signs and wonders and keep us faithful. And then it says, verse 31, when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered was shaken And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. And we're to understand that happened in response to their their gathering to pray. God makes them a church filled with people like that. We get to Acts 6, and now they're this big community, and there's lots of needs, and as needs increase and the time demands on the apostles increase, first of all, the apostles say, here's one thing that can't get crowded out and missed in all this. Acts 6, 4. 
They say, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. One of the two things they said we've got to make sure doesn't get squeezed out is praying together. If we're gonna lead the people of God, then one of the things we have to do is get, get, gather together and pray together. But notice in Acts 6, it's not just the apostles. It's not just the leaders. But in Acts uh, 6, 2, the problem is widows are getting overlooked. Some are getting cared for. Others aren't. And they're trying to keep track. And, and they say, here's the plan. They call the full number of disciples together. Let's get everyone together, Acts 6, 2. And they decide, all right, let's solve this problem. Let's identify some qualified, godly, spirit-filled men to take the responsibility of caring for these widows in, in, in their need. And then what do they do? Acts 6, verse 6, they set these before the apostles. So the whole full number of disciples set these people, selected these men, and they prayed and they laid their hands on them. And they commissioned them to, to this work of God by praying together. They asked God to bless our plans and our problem solving and our best attempts to meet the needs of this community that you're building. They pray. In Acts 8, when the Samaritans get saved, these Samaritans receive Jesus, what do they do? Acts 8, 14, they send Peter and John who come down and they pray for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. They go down physically present with them to all be together now with this new community that's part of a larger community, these outsiders who are brought in and they lay hands on them and they receive the Holy Spirit. Acts 12, Herod kills James, the brother of John, and then Peter gets arrested, and there's this big gulp. Verse 5, Acts 12, what does the church do? Earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. They see the threat, and they all get together. They get together in one of their houses, and they pray together for Peter. And I love the way the story unfolds, because the story unfolds so that we don't miss that what God does next, he does in response to the church earnestly praying together. Because right after that, Peter's in prison. He's awoken. This angel breaks him out of prison, leads him out to safely, this divine intervention and, and rescue such that when Peter's out, he's looking for everyone and he finally finds them. It's funny. In fact, he's knocking at the door, remember? And one of them in the prayer meeting finally goes and answers the door and doesn't expect to see Peter. And it's just this kind of hilarious thing. He finds them. They're still praying together. God answers their prayer while they're gathered. Acts 14, or 13, the church in Antioch says, what next, God? You've built this little church here and we've got godly people part of this church and you've filled it with spiritually gifted people. What should we do next? And it says, Acts 13, one through three, they begin fasting and worshiping and praying and looking to God for direction. And it becomes clear to all of them, send Saul and Barnabas out. Send them out from you to go bless other places that haven't heard the gospel yet and to plant churches. And so in verse three, they, set the, uh, they laid hands on them and after fasting and praying, sent them off. And they go off. In Acts 14, Paul and Barnabas go from place to place and we get a glimpse of the pattern. Look at Acts 14, 23. When they appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they believed. So they preached the gospel People get saved, church gets established, they start training up some leaders and some elders and then they gather them all together and they lay hands and pray for these elders and commend them and their ongoing work to the Lord, all gathered. 
in every place where this happens. And we see it again and again. In Acts 20, Paul leaves the Ephesian church behind. And before leaving, they gather together. They kneel down on the beach and he prays with them and for them, commends them to the Lord as he's going to leave. And then as he goes on, as you read Paul's letters, he's constantly writing back to these churches and among other things, telling him that he is gathering with Christians regularly to pray for them. Not just personally, over and over. He writes to the Corinthian church, we pray to God that you may not do wrong. We, your restoration is what we pray for. He tells the Colossians, we always thank God when we pray for you. It indicates they've prayed more than, more than once. Whenever we pray for you, we give thanks. He tells the Thessalonians, we're constantly mentioning you in our prayers. We pray most earnestly day and night. And then he asks people in his letters, these churches, churches, Philippians, Colossians, Thessalonians, Roman church. By the way, would you help us in prayer? And he asks these churches to link arms with what they're doing by being a praying church on their behalf. Romans, he tells the Roman church, be constant in prayer. He tells the Colossian church, continue steadfastly in prayer. One last thing. He tells Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, as he's laying out for him what he says, this is how one ought to behave in the household of God. Here's what the household of God ought to be about. He says, first of all then, I urge that supplications, plural, prayers, plural, intercessions, plural, thanksgivings, plural, be made for all people. First and foremost, Timothy, make sure that as a household of God, you are regularly praying. Are we getting the picture? God wants us to be a praying church, not just prayerful individuals, but a we that prays. If we're going to grow together, we must pray together. It's both how we grow, but it ends up becoming a, an evidence that God is maturing us as we increasingly become a dependent people looking to him in everything, giving him thanks. Which is why at Grace we've written a vision statement related to prayer. About a year and a half ago, in, in this area of prayer, we don't want to just assume that hopefully, cr cross our fingers, one day we're going to just become more of a praying church. But we wrote a statement to say, no, this is what we're aiming at in regards to prayer when we think of Grace La Mirada. It's this, we want to be a church where each member, so this is presenting again, everyone mature, not just saying, well, this is a church where 15% of us who really feel burdened to pray regularly pray with other Christians. No, that's not the ideal. A church where everyone is mature in Christ is one where every member is individually and corporately or collectively as a we devoted to consistent, earnest, expectant prayer. We want to be devoted to this. That's a really good word, to devote yourself to something. It means to commit yourself to and to give priority of place and to guard so that it doesn't get squeezed out. I think we can sometimes, though, think of devoting ourselves to things as a burdensome thing. Oh, we got to be devoted to individual prayer and corporate prayer. We got to be devoted to consistent, earnest. But the word devoted is more than just committed, isn't it? If I told you that Brian McDerris is a devoted husband and dad, none of you would assume that he doesn't enjoy doing that. 
Because devoted communicates more than just he gives Trisha and the kids the first of his time before he cares for himself or does other things. It says more than that. It tells you about the why, doesn't it? He's devoted to Trisha and the kids because they're his treasure. He loves them. And he wants them to have priority of place, right? We devote ourselves to those things that we treasure. That's why Packer can say, so a church that does praise of little consequence and doesn't devote themselves to prayer must not really know their God because they must clearly don't treasure their God if they're not praying as such. And so we want to be devoted because the privilege of prayer is a treasure. It's this amazing blessing that every day uh, I take for granted and you take for granted. We forget I can speak out loud or just in my thoughts to the creator of the universe who attends to me. This morning we were singing hymns about um, Christians around the world, shore to shore, God hears them call. He hears us all, millions calling and he hears you calling and he hears Grace La Mirada out of all those prayers calling. We have this privilege and treasure and we want to devote ourselves to it. A few months ago in March, we had a members meeting and we're talking about these things and and I I was just sharing a few uh, things that I see uniquely um, are helpful as we pray together, things that happen when we pray together with other Christians. I wanted to just re-highlight one this morning for those who weren't here. Praying together among many great things unites us around God's purposes. There's something about praying together that helps keep centering us and keeps our compass pointed in the right direction toward the things that God purposes for his church. Let me give you an example. So this morning, in a minute, we're gonna get to repenting together, to be a church that that turns from sin and confesses our sin together and runs to Jesus together. Why should we repent together? Well, it reunites us or unites us around God's purpose that we be holy. God has determined that his church be holy. Ephesians 1, in love he predestined us for adoptions of sons that we might be holy. So he has a purpose and we forget that purpose and we grow lazy in that purpose. So we, we turn to one another, we repent together and it reunites us around God's purpose that we be holy. Same goes for next Sunday as Eric's gonna preach on hungering and thirsting for God together. That's one of the most basic prayers that we pray in one form or another together, all the time together. God, show us your glory. As we turn to a sermon, God, help us not miss. Give us ears to hear. It's a prayer of hungering and thirsting for more of God. And when we gather and do that together, it unites us around God's purpose that we be joyful in him, that we actually enjoy him. That's why God saved us, right? that we might know him and enjoy him forever. So Jesus jealously prayed for us in the upper room that, that we could be one with the Father as he and the Father are one and that we could know that love and enjoy it. And so as we regularly seek God's face together, it reunites us around a purpose that that's what we're living for, to get really happy in God. Week three, we want to talk about giving thanks together. When we give thanks regularly together as a a church, it unites us around God's purpose that we be content and that we give him glory in all things. 
You can't give thanks but also pat yourself on the back at the same time because giving thanks is ascribing credit somewhere else. And if we're a regularly thanksgiving or giving thanks sort of a church, it's going to keep centering us on who gets the glory, who gets the credit. And we ask God together. We come and, and bring our request to him because he has a purpose that we be fruitful. John 15, we're the branches. He's the vine. Apart from him, we can do nothing. But he wants to bear much fruit through us and so prove that we're disciples. He wants to bear much fruit. And so as we ask together, we keep reminding one another of this purpose. God wants us to be a fruitful church. He wants to do things that blow our mind unexpectedly wonderful things. One last thing I want to say about praying together before we talk about repenting together. And that's this. Um, what we see, I think, in Acts and the New Testament as there's praying together is sort of two aspects. And they overlap and they kind of blend in and out. But there's a lot of praying for one another that the church does. And then there's a lot of praying with one another for one another, meaning intercessory prayer. We are sharing our needs and our weaknesses with one another and we're lifting up one another's burdens, not just, hey, I'll pray for you later, but together we're praying together. And as a church, we are formally trying to uh, guard space for this in grace groups and band of brothers and women's ministry. Our youth core groups each week are doing this, setting aside time to pray for one another. And it goes on. And we hope that this is just um, kindlings for that to happen informally all the time when we're with one another. But praying with one another is a big part of this too. Um, sometimes it's praying with one another for one another, but sometimes it's praying as a we, shoulder to shoulder, that God would bring about in our day through our church the things he wants to do, that we're praying as a we, not just as a room full of individual eyes. And other than our Sunday morning worship, the one place over the years where we've been trying to guard time for that and plan for it has been House of Prayer, which is, has been two Wednesday nights a month, the same nights our elders meet. And we're about to make a change in that uh, after the month of August. So August, we still have two Wednesday night house of prayer. But starting in September for the school year, in a desire to, to stir up a greater participation among us in praying with one another sort of prayer, we're moving house of prayer to Sunday morning, once a month, 11.15 service, second Sunday every month upstairs in the youth room with the hope that during third service as there's childcare for some of you that would allow you to participate uh, and it's coming right out of our second service that some might be able to come to the service and then come upstairs and pray uh, that, that we would see a greater participation in praying with one another. So I know I realize I'm talking to the third service. You're all 11 15ers. If you all do that, we're gonna have to figure out what to do. But we'll figure that out, right, JP? If that happened, that'd be a wonderful problem to have is whatever that Sunday, no one comes to third service. <laughs> all right, anyway, all right, so repenting together. I want us to think just for a few minutes about this because it is one of the, I think, rhythms and patterns that there should be in the life of, of any church is that we are repenting together. Turn to 1 John chapter 1. I want to read from verse 5 through the first six verses of chapter 2 and just briefly look at three, three components here to repenting together that John is urging us to, to, to be, be about as Christians and as a church. It all sort of adds up to the process of repenting together. Let me read 1 John 1, 5 and, and following. 
This is the message that we've heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Okay, next step. If we say we have fellowship with him, the God who's light has no darkness in him at all, while we walk in darkness, we lie and we don't practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he's in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, also for the sins of the whole world. And by this, we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. How do you really feel, John? (laughs) And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we're in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Three things. First of all, repenting together means we're pursuing holiness together. Or to use John's word, we are walking in the light together. We're making that the habit of our life is walking in the light, pursuing holiness. He comes at it both from the negative side and the positive side. On the negative side, he says in verse five and six, Uh, God is light. In him is no darkness at all. So to claim fellowship with God and meanwhile walk in darkness, that's just an oxymoron. It just doesn't compute. He says we're lying to ourselves. That's just a lie. We cannot both say I'm friends with God publicly and in private, I'm friends with sin. Those two things don't match. In chapter two, verse four, he says it another way. He says, whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar. Throughout the letter, he uses terms like practicing sin as meaning ongoing, unrepentant sin and clinging to it or practicing righteousness, growing in it, walking in it. So I can't tell myself truthfully that I can both be a friend of God and a friend of sin to remain in a state of unrepentance and claim the blessings that only come through repentance, it doesn't work that way, John's saying. And he couldn't get any more clearer that he really wants us to walk in the light. In in chapter two, verse one, he says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. One of the reasons that Jesus saved us is so that we might not sin. He wants us to know the freedom from sin that he died to obtain. He wants us to walk in righteousness. The very last sentence of 1 John, he goes out with just one last parting shot. Little children, keep yourself from idols. He really wants us to be holy. I think the Christian life is marked by ongoing repentance, ongoing turning from sin. Listen to this, Colossians 2.6. It says, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. 
So it's not over day one. I turn from my sin, turn to Jesus, repentance over. No, he says in the same way that you received him, that's how it continues. You keep turning from sin, turning to Christ. Like Hebrews 12 says, setting aside sin which so easily entangles and running the race set before us. It's a, it's a process. And it's a process I can grow lazy in, and so can you. Listen to this, Jerry Bridges in The Pursuit of Holiness says, we become so accustomed to our sins because we know them, we live with them every day. He says, we sometimes lapse into a state of peaceful coexistence with them, but God never ceases to hate them. It's a wake-up sort of statement. We, the Christian life is not one of just making peace with our sin because it's, it's always going to be there. It's one of making war with sin. In Titus 2, he, he tells Titus, Paul does, the grace of God has appeared. He's talking about the cross. Jesus came and died for it all, paid for it all. It's done, finished. And then he says, and that grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people and training us to renounce ungodliness. That's a process language. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. And he says at the end, purifying for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. Notice he says, the grace of God that's already appeared in the past is training us toward this end. It trains us to keep declaring officially, I'm abandoning sin, I'm abandoning sin, I'm abandoning sin, even though I keep turning back, no, no, I'm abandoning sin. And he says, the grace that's already appeared is training us. I think this is maybe what he means. I read this from Charles Spurgeon in his account of his conversion. After he had come to Christ, he says, I cannot trifle with the evil that killed my best friend. I must be holy for his sake. How can I live in sin when he's died to save me from it? The grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to me. How can I keep walking in it? Why would I not keep saying no to sin and walking toward Christ increasingly? That's the Christian life, a pursuit of holiness. But then John wants us to be very clear. What he does not mean is that the true mark of a Christian is you never sin. Sinless perfection. Almost as soon as he's said very strongly that to walk in the dark but to claim fellowship is impossible, he says in verses 8, 9, and 10, no, confess your sins together. He comes at it both negatively and positively. Look at verse 8 and 10. First of all, he says, listen, don't assume I mean that a real Christian never sins anymore. Nope. He says, verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. That's another lie. To say, oh, I've arrived. Or verse 10, if we say we haven't sinned, If we dismiss and explain away our past sin, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So to claim we don't have any sin, we're lying to ourselves, we're calling God a liar, and we're basically evidencing that the word of God has not really made any impact in us, John says. And you might hear him say that if I say I have no sin. You think, I'd never say that. (laughs) I mean, which one of you would stand up in this room and say, okay, I don't know about the rest of you, but I haven't sinned. You say, well, I would never say that. And probably you wouldn't because we'd all laugh at you. 
No, we wouldn't laugh at you. That would be not a, a mark of maturity. But we'd say that's absurd. We wouldn't, we, we wouldn't actually say it like that. But I think day by day, our inclination is to live in that way and project an image as if we have no sin and we don't have a problem with sin. I was thinking about some of you in this room have never taken a selfie. Good for you. Pat yourself. But for those of you who have ever tried to take a picture of yourself, you know how it goes. You get it up there and you're like, whoa, that's what I look like? And you move it over to the other hand. Like, nope, still bad from that angle too, you know? And you figure out ways to like, well, that scar's on this side. The wrinkles are on that side. I got to do up so that they don't see my double chin that's forming right here. And you try to, and you know, delete that one. And you finally get that one that presents your best face, Right? And we are all prone to come here on a Sunday and to interact with one another and present our best face. And at the end of the day, in, in another way, it's just saying, trying to say, we don't have sin. John says, don't do that. Don't do that. That's foolish. Look at verse 9. He says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and he's just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We do the scary thing by admitting We've, we've fallen short. We still fall short. We've got sin that easily entangles us. And look what comes through it. Forgiveness of sins and an ongoing cleansing us from unrighteousness as we confess our sins. He makes us clean. I don't know if you've noticed, but every Sunday at Grace during our sung worship, in one way or another, we take time to confess our sin together. Sometimes it looks differently. Sometimes whoever's leading will pray on behalf of all of us, not their own individual list of sins, but on behalf of all of us, the sins we know that we all struggle with. Or sometimes we invite you to privately pray silently on a Sunday and confess your sins. Sometimes we invite you to pray out loud, either confessing individual sin or confessing on behalf of all of us. But the reason is very intentional so that no one would ever come in these doors on a Sunday and leave thinking, those people think that they have it all together. Those people don't seem to think that they have any sin or problem. No, we do. And we confess it together. We turn from it together. We pursue holiness together. We take these things seriously. But third, we run to our advocate together. That's the, that's the last part of the repenting process. We don't just turn from our sin, but we run to our advocate. I love how John puts one, verses one and two together in chapter two, right after strongly saying, I write these things so that you may not sin. Christian, please Fight to put death, to death what's earthly in you. Don't get peacefully coexistent with your sin. Fight it. In the very next breath, he says, but if you sin, we have an advocate. John, he's an old man when he writes this. He says we. So he wasn't saying he had no sin either. He's saying, but if we sin, we have an advocate. An advocate is one who speaks on your behalf. And what Jesus is speaking on your behalf is I've paid it all. That's what the word propitiation means. He's the propitiation. He is the sacrifice that God set forward who endured and turned away God's wrath so that now God can justly show favor to us as sinners. Jesus says, that's me. I'm the propitiation. I've done that, and now I'm an advocate. And so what I love about this as we close is as, as we're encouraged to fight sin, run hard after holiness, to have a holy dissatisfaction with we're not there yet. We are to run hard under the shadow of the cross. In other words, 
We are called to fight sin tooth and nail, not to claw our way into the kingdom of God. We're to fight sin to the death as beloved, adopted, secure children of God who he's promised he won't forsake. Why wouldn't we do this? I want us to take a few minutes to actually do this right now before we close with a beautiful hymn that helps us run to our advocate here as the final word in this service. But here's how I want us to do it. This is what I read from earlier in Titus 2. What, what Paul says here reminds us that we, on any given day, we have so much to confess, both what we have done that we shouldn't have and what exists in our hearts that ought not, but also what we've left undone, things that God's called us to that we've just neglected and, and not given priority or place. So see, underlined here, for example, here's confessing what we have done, training us to renounce ungodliness, worldly passions, redeem us from lawlessness. In a minute, I want to invite a couple of you out loud on behalf of all of us to confess some of the things that we have left un, or we have done, ways we've transgressed and sinned and done what we ought not do. But in this, these verses, it also, it points us to the things that we ought to have done and haven't done. My button stopped working. It's okay. I wanted to highlight living self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age and being zealous for good works. On any given Sunday, we have much to confess for there too. We have failed to be the people that God has called us to be for all various reasons. And at the end, I want to close and pray and give thanks that we have an advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous, and we're going to sing and close. So let's go to prayer. If you're going to pray out loud, would you pray loud enough that we can hear it uh, and all be blessed and all included in this? And recognize you're praying on behalf of all of us. This isn't necessarily just your personal, but recognizing that we, we, we know the things that we struggle with. So let's do this. Let's pray. First, the things that we've done, and then a couple of people, things that we've left undone, and then we'll close. God, forgive our lack of zeal for good works, that there are good works you have for us that we can just feel are a burdensome thing sitting on a to spiritual to-do list that we'd rather not be responsible for. Forgive us, Lord, even this week for walking right past our neighbor that you wanted us to love. Uh, forgive us for even being blind to the stranger that you wanted us to see and love. Lord, forgive us for allowing um, disunity and unresolved conflict and past sins to, to remain unresolved and, and just ignoring it and putting it out of mind rather than moving toward people to, to make peace. God, forgive us for just um, complacency in, in giving of what you've entrusted to us and sort of setting it and forgetting it when it comes to generosity and rather than looking for ways um, to steward everything you've given us uh, in a way that would put our treasure in heaven. God, forgive us for uh, hiding our sin. We can never hide it from you, God, and I pray that you'd help us to want to be people who walk in the light to seek out other believers in our life before whom we can be transparent, um, that we'd find the freedom in that that John's talking about, knowing we're forgiven and you cleansing us from unrighteousness. And in all this, we thank you that we do this under the shadow of the cross, that we are forgiven children. 
and you are still working out your good work in us and you're patient. We thank you for that. God, I pray as we return tonight to take the Lord's Supper and with our bodies we stand and uh, physically confess our sin by walking forward and taking the bread and taking the cup and publicly acknowledging that our guilt needs to be covered too, Lord. I pray that this would encourage us to pursue holiness. Thank you for your spirit meeting us here this morning. Help us to, in an ongoing way, be a people who repent together. In Jesus' name, amen.